How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. 9.03 on this Easter Monday, and this is quite a story. It's worth your read in the Globe and Mail because they were married 73 years. 73 years. This is a a real-life love story, uh, almost unheard of today. Uh, And now George and Shirley Brickenden are also one of the only couples in this country to die together with assisted death. And the first to speak out about their choice of why it was so important. And they shared that story with the Globe and Mail writer who takes us through their lives, their hardships, their joys, and the fact that they were deeply, deeply in love, completely inseparable. And a family who very much supported their wishes held a reunion to celebrate them, help send them off, because the Brickendons had always told their kids that they did not want to linger if their health failed. Now, the stipulation in the law of assisted suicide requires that a patient's natural death must be a reasonable, uh, reasonably foreseeable. And for surely, it was heart failure and rheumatoid arthritis that had ravaged her body, so she was eligible. Her husband was not. George was frail and he was elderly, 95, but he had no underlying ailments. And because they refused to leave each other, she held on. And she says herself, he miraculously started to go downhill. And she says it, you know, with a laugh. And the doctors finally signed off on him. And together, this couple had been granted medical permission to, as they say, fly away. And on March 27th, holding hands, laying in bed, they died together. Globe and Mail journalist who joins me now, Kelly Grant, wrote their story and joins us now with that experience. Kelly, how did you get a story like this? I mean, why was it so important for them to speak out? So I was contacted by the advocacy group Dying with Dignity. Um, As your listeners probably know, they're a group that is in favor of medical aid and dying, and they actually helped this couple navigate the process. And this couple wanted to speak about it because after the time it took for them to get approved, they sort of wanted to let other people know that that this was an option for um, for couples like them who wanted to die together as, as long as those couples met individually all the criteria for the law. Right. And so... You know, the story itself is quite touching, um, quite emotional. But, you know, you raise that question now about, you know, the line of being across, because I think when when you read this, as touching as it is, it does force you to contemplate these uncomfortable truths about, you know, was any line crossed ethically or is this, you know, the way it was done properly, even though it was done on their terms? Well, I think... One of the things that makes writing about this new assisted dying law so interesting is that the criteria for the law are still quite vague. So that means that the way doctors on the ground are interpreting this can differ substantially from place to place. Now, there are a lot of people who think that the law is often being interpreted too narrowly and that there are people who should qualify and are not. Um, This is a case where some might argue that perhaps the, the criteria were applied 
more liberally than the government originally intended. But I mean, the rules are if there are two doctors who think you meet the criteria um, and you follow all the other aspects in terms of, of timing, um, you have to make a formal application. You have to wait at least 10 days between the application and your death. Um, much more time passed in this case. As long as you meet all of the requirements of the law, you do qualify. But I think as a society, we do have lots of questions about um, how this law is being interpreted, because as I said, the, the legal language itself is still quite vague. Right, because while she did meet the criteria, she had heart failure, she had had a heart attack that she had survived, she had rheumatoid arthritis ravaging her body, and he didn't qualify because while he was frail, he didn't have an underlying ailment. So she waited. Yeah, and I want to clarify that he didn't qualify a year ago. Right. Um, obviously, now at the time of his death, he did qualify. So what happened in that intervening year is he began having these um, fainting spells, which makes it sound um, right. less severe than it actually was, but that on multiple occasions they would find that he was unconscious because his heart was starting to, to fail too. So his family would find him unconscious and they would rush him to the hospital. And, and you know, um, basically when he was reassessed a year later, it was determined that that deterioration um, and his underlying heart problems then made him, um, made him eligible. But he wasn't a year ago before those problems started to surface. The story itself, though, is very, very compelling because they call it flying away, which is, you know, dying. That's their terminology. But they really did do it uh, their way. And I urge my listeners to go and read this piece because it's um, it's very touching, even if you don't agree with the whole premise of, of assisted suicide. Um, but really, they loved each other. They have a deep, deep love story. And they had a lot of support. They did. I mean, first of all, I have to say, like, it was very fun to meet them, which I know sounds odd under the circumstances, but like they really had this very fun, dry, yeah. cutting wit. Yeah. They Which is very flirted. rare today. So it's yeah. nice when you actually get to see it. Right. And they flirted with each other, right? <laughs> like you could tell they were still like teasing each other a bit, very in love. Their kids were also very funny, great senses of humor, and obviously were very much in support of the decisions that their parents were making here. So, I mean, part of what made this kind of a a bit of a challenging story to write was that it was hard to walk away from the interview with them and not feel as though they still had so much to live for. Right. Um, And that's why you had said you felt perplexed. mm -hmm. And and that's why I, a couple of days after I met them for this interview, um, Shirley tracked me down. She had my number, but she made a couple of calls. She had her daughter email me um, to, to tell me about how she felt as though they had sort of glossed over how bad they felt and how much they were suffering, um, her in particular because of their rheumatoid arthritis, which she could speak to herself. And, you know, she did talk a lot about she's part of a generation and a certain kind of people who are, they're very stoic. They make everything sort of a funny, light joke, and they certainly don't like to complain. Like she and George were both um, veterans of the Second World War. They were very much of a generation that didn't like to complain. And I think that behavior came across in the interview. And when she called me back after, and we had a a nice long chat afterwards, she really let me know just how badly the two of them had been feeling physically. Yeah, that's quite something that, um, because when you do read the article, you come away thinking, what a fun couple and what a lovely family. And they lived it to the very end. But you don't ever take away that. Clearly, there was a lot of pain there. 
and you know, and afterwards she was willing to tell me that. And it wasn't as though they weren't willing to tell me that during the interview, but clearly their instinct was to make light of things and to not be complainers. You know, the other thing that I think is really interesting about any of these cases where we're dealing with people who are in extreme old age is that the only people in that situation who are who will ever qualify under the law are people who seem very sharp because you have to be able to consent yes. right up to the moment of death. So anybody who you might think of as being in bad shape in their mid-90s is often somebody who has lost their mental faculties. Yes. And that type of person will never qualify. So, yeah. any, so anybody who who anybody who qualifies for this law has to be very with it, so to speak. It and has so, to almost be the perfect storm because really what what 95-year-old man still has all his faculties? Well, yeah. And then as a result, when you meet somebody who's 95 and has all their faculties, as this couple clearly did, it's hard not to think, well, well wait a minute. This isn't what I picture when I picture somebody who qualifies for this law. But, you know, you have to have uh, in, intolerable suffering and that suffering is judged by you as a patient. You have to be in irreversible decline as it's pretty hard to argue that people in their mid-90s are not irreversibly declining. You have to have a death that is reasonably foreseeable. Again, if you're in your mid-90s, your death is reasonably foreseeable. So the kinds of people who qualify will inevitably be people who seem sharp, because if you're not sharp, you can't qualify. You know, there are some stories that just stay with you in your career. Is this one of those stories? And what was your big takeaway? Oh, yeah, this, I think, will very much stay, stay with me. Um, I mean, my big takeaway is one that... I think some of the best stories are ones that are both human and complicated, um, if, if that makes any sense, that um, there, there are things about the people who I get to talk to as a journalist that I find very interesting and compelling, and this couple, their story was certainly one of them. But I think if it had been a 100% straightforward case, it didn't raise any important issues about how this law is being applied, it wouldn't have been as compelling a tale. And quickly before I let you go, any signs of regret from anybody, you know, family, the kids, after the no, fact? That they're going not, to... not in the least. I went and met with uh, the two daughters uh, two days later and then spoke with the son by phone during that same meeting. And, you know, they it's not as though they don't miss their parents. They talked about, you know, wanting to speak with them and, and already how much they miss them. But I think they had been watching for such a long time as their parents deteriorated. They had been so worried that one would go without the other, that they were so relieved that they got to have this death just as they had always wished, that you know, they felt very comfortable with the choice. But they still were heartbroken having lost their parents, who they clearly loved dearly. Yeah, well, it's a fascinating, really, really compelling and a beautifully written piece. Thanks so much for joining us, Kelly. All right. Thanks very much, Alex. Kelly Grant, writer with The Globe and Mail. It'll be interesting to see if this is the first of, of many, many stories that we start uh, to see on this issue. We've heard, you know, one or two. This, I think, takes us into a new territory where we're talking about couples going together, kind of mapping out their own, uh, you know, route and how they want to go. And uh, like I said, it's a bit of a slippery slope. I am not against assisted death. I think it's a very personal choice. I'll never judge anybody for doing it, but uh, it certainly opens the door on the stories we're going to start hearing, I think, more and more. But I do urge you to read it because it is a, a hell of a read.